Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Hope you enjoyed our Labor Day special answering more of your questions. You know, Jim, we had a bit of a struggle coming up with good martinis at the uh, end of last week, but I'm happy to say we're starting off our normal fare for this week uh, following the Labor Day weekend with two good martinis. We had to go to different countries to find these good martinis, but at least we have them. And let's start in the UK, where yesterday the Conservative Party selected a new prime minister. Her name is Liz Truss. Today, Liz Truss went up to Balmoral to become the 16th prime minister during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Just absolutely amazing. After the disaster that was Theresa May, after the initial promise, and then major problems we had with Boris Johnson. Uh, there's two years now before mandatory elections for parliament that the Tories have to to get things right. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on British politics, but a lot of people I would describe as Thatcherites are pretty happy with this selection. So that always gives me reason for optimism. And uh, here is a, a bit of Liz Truss's speech yesterday after being elected uh, prime minister by her party, saying she campaigned as a conservative and she's going to govern as one too. Listen. During this leadership campaign, I campaigned as a conservative and I will govern as a conservative. And my friends, we need to show that we will deliver over the next two years. I will deliver a bold plan to cut taxes and grow our economy. I will deliver on the energy crisis, dealing with people's energy bills, but also dealing with the long-term issues we have on energy supply. Jim, I always love it when politicians tell me they're going to cut my taxes and and grow the economy. Let's hope she actually follows through on that and has a parliament that will go along with that as well. Given the big majority uh, conservatives and their coalition partners have in parliament, that should be doable if they actually uh, believe in that. So uh, given the chaos we've seen on the right in Britain, let's hope that this uh, steadies the ship a little bit and, uh, and gets things headed in a much more constructive and conservative direction. Indeed, Greg. And and there are two thoughts I have on this. The first is we on the right shouldn't get too focused on uh, what we sometimes dismiss as bean counters uh, or diversity for the sake of diversity. But you can't help but notice that right now in the year 2022, the United Kingdom has had three women prime ministers and all of them have been conservative. Uh, Obviously, the legendary Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May, and now Liz Truss, which really should undermine this reflexive argument from the Labour Party and most generally most parties on the left that the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement and the right side of the spectrum is somehow anti-women, hates women, wants to keep women down, barefoot and pregnant, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, Thatcher should have blown it up to begin with, but the fact that there's now been three in the course of a generation and you know, the Labour Party, uh, whatever its other uh, features, if anyone can find any good redeeming features, uh, has not been headed by a woman. And I'm sure they convince themselves that they are indeed standing up against sexism and standing for women's rights and things like that. So I think that is somewhat useful. I think we can chuckle and go neater, neater, neater to the left over that point. 
Um, I don't expect a British conservative leader to sound the same, and no, I'm not talking about accents, as an American conservative leader. We see the world slightly differently. Our priorities are slightly different. Um, so I shouldn't expect it, but uh, Boris Johnson was basically an experiment in big government conservatism. Many folks on the right will always love him or, or think fondly of him for getting Britain out of the EU, for Brexit. But on a whole host of domestic political issues, Boris Johnson was, I can do big government better. I'm not going to attempt to shrink the size of government. I'm not going to talk about this. It was a bit like George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism. When people are hurting, the government's got to move. Uh, on steroids that, that you know, there, there was, you know, because Boris Johnson had no problem throwing lots of money and expanding the size and reach of government. And that wasn't the sole reason for his undoing. I think a lot of his, um, let's just say bad impulse control was at the heart of Boris Johnson's undoing as prime minister. But nonetheless, I think it's a sign that if you try to be a pale imitation um, of what the Labour Party is doing, Eventually, sooner or later, people will choose the genuine and authentic Labor Party instead of the imitation Labor Party. Look, it's early. These are, this is the easiest part of governing, making the promises and saying the right things. But it is good to hear Liz Truss saying she campaigned as a conservative and will govern as a conservative, focusing on energy bills, which are a huge deal over there, uh, cut taxes, grow our economy. She's saying all the right things. Now she has to do it, which is a little more challenging, but also I think in the parliamentary system, you automatically have a majority in the House of uh, Parliament that is uh, at least nominally aligned with your thinking and inclined to go along with your agenda. So good luck, Liz Truss. We will be rooting for you and hopefully better days for the United Kingdom lay ahead. Jim, you mentioned she's the third female prime minister, Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. I don't think this needs to be said out loud, Jim, but Liz... You want to be more like Margaret Thatcher than Theresa May. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's pretty clear for anybody. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Maggie is the gold standard here. Unless you're in a global war, then Churchill's the gold standard. Who was the first prime minister under Queen Elizabeth, by the way? Winston Churchill all the way to Liz Truss. Amazing. All right. Uh, on to our first great sponsor of the day. And Jim, we all know that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online. But it also unlocks a lot of great movies and shows that are only available in other countries because it helps to uh, disguise what country you're actually in. So if you love watching all these streaming shows like on Netflix and beyond, you have another great reason to get ExpressVPN. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, very good for staying on top of the Liz Trust News. YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason you should use ExpressVPN to watch shows is because it is ridiculously fast. There's never any buffering or lag, and you can stream in HD with no problems. ExpressVPN also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want, when you want, on the big screen or on the go. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, go to expressvpn.com slash martini right now, and you'll also get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash martini. Again, expressvpn.com slash martini to learn much more. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini. And once again, we're in a different country, but uh, a very different country. We're over in Chile now, down in, in South America where not that long ago, uh, they elected a very young socialist president. 
That was mistake number one. Uh, they have uh, avoided a monumental second mistake, though, because according to AP, Chileans have resoundingly rejected a new constitution to replace a charter imposed by General Augusto Pinochet 41 years ago, dealing a stinging setback to President Gabriel Boric, who argued the document would have ushered in a new progressive era. With 99% of the votes counted in Sunday's plebiscite, the rejection camp had 61.9% compared to 38.1% for approval amid heavy turnout with long lines at polling places. Voting was mandatory. That's an interesting topic in and of itself. So what would have been in this thing? Well, as Jazz Shah tells us over at Hot Air, the idea that the uh, proposed constitution would fundamentally change the South American country, uh, that is true. Uh, but people like having a stable government in Chile, it appears. The summary of the what would have been the new constitution with its many amendments says that it, quote, puts a focus on social issues and gender parity, enshrines rights for the country's indigenous population, meaning autonomous areas, and puts the environment and climate change center stage. It also includes new rights, quote unquote, to free education, health care, and housing. Uh, a couple of quick Twitter responses here. Peter Robinson, former speechwriter for President Reagan, says on this overwhelming defeat of the leftist constitution in Chile, I got this message from a Chilean friend, quote, look at the referendum results across socioeconomic class. The poor were more likely to reject the proposed constitution than the wealthy. Wokeism is a luxury belief. That's confirmed by the New York Times, which which uh, tees up its story by saying voters in Chile on Sunday overwhelmingly rejected a sweeping left-leaning constitution that would have guaranteed a record number of rights. Jim, all of these uh, sorts of headlines are making me say, well done, Chilean people. If the New York Times is completely baffled why you wouldn't want to go hard left, then you've clearly made the right call. I was going to say, if listeners want to say, hey, wait a minute, this is the three martini lunch. You guys mostly do American news. And once in a while, you'll dabble or dip your toes into this. This is probably the first time we've discussed the state of Chilean politics here on the three martini lunch. If you want to say... <laughs> Uh, you know, are you guys just, just looking for good news wherever you can find it? Okay, guilty. But I think there are some significant uh, ramifications of this. Among them, I, I, actually, I'm reminded of the Henry Kissinger statement that the entire continent of South America was a dagger pointed straight at the heart of Antarctica. <laughs> uh, look, South American politics don't get a lot of attention. But maybe we should pay more attention to this. But this, I think, should make us sit up and take notice. Not just because of the stakes. I mean, this wasn't just the election of a leader who could, you know, leaders come and go, legislative majorities come and go. But this was altering the Constitution, effectively rewriting the Constitution. And the second thing that jumps out is the margin, which I believe at you know, 99%, we're now at 61.9% to 38.1%, right? All, not quite two to one, but almost in that category. Uh, and when you talk about heavy turnout, you know, it, it, when, when voting's mandatory, yes, you're going to get just about everybody to turn out there. So you can't argue, oh, there was a big pocket of support that just didn't come out to vote or something like that, or, oh, voter suppression or, or something like that. No, everybody in Chile had a chance to weigh in on this. And in fact, most of them were kind of forced under, under the law to weigh in on this. And generally, they've said no. All right. Now, by the way, I also argue that when people don't vote, that's generally a vote for the status quo. If they were really all that upset about how things were going, they would have showed up and voted. But here we are, in which basically this was what, you know, the socialist dream. This was the left ideal of what a constitution ought to be. 
And by an almost two to one margin, Chileans said, nope, not interested. Sorry, we'll stick with what. Yes, we know this one has ties back to Pinochet. We're not saying the one we got is perfect, but no, we don't want this. And the reaction from the likes of the New York Times is really almost like delightfully they're, they're just beside themselves. And, oh, this must have been propaganda. Oh, it's disinformation. Ah, oh, I know. They just cannot get their heads around the idea that what they want to do is unpopular. And what's even more, they cannot uh, grasp the idea that the poor would not actually agree with them, that the people who they think that they're trying to help don't actually like their ideas and don't actually think they would help them. This is delicious. This is one of the few times we'll pay that much attention to Chile, but good for you Chileans, and hopefully the country will prosper for many years to come. Well, and it has been prospering for a long time. Whatever you think of Pinochet, his economic policies have been very, very beneficial uh, for the people of Chile over a number of decades. And you see what's happening with much of the rest of the continent. They're embracing the socialists. You know, you've had the Ecuador. I think Bolivia went in that direction. Uh, Colombia seems to be heading more in that direction. Obviously, Venezuela turned into a complete dumpster fire after being one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, and so to have somebody standing athwart that and saying, stop, Jim, I think mm. would, uh, would uh, say to conservatives, that's a good thing. Excellent uh, choice of words. <laughs> so uh, good for the Chileans and uh, mandatory voting. I don't know. I don't think I like that. I think that you should have the right to vote, obviously. But if you don't want to do it, that's that's making a choice, like you said, in, in your estimation as well. Plus, you know, if a bunch of Jeff Spicoli-like stoners don't want to show up, you know, and they're not too knowledgeable about what's going on, that's not going to break my heart either. All right, on to our bad martini. And for that, we do come back to the United States a little bit, uh, but it's mainly, again, about Europe. I didn't intend for this to be the international edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Just seems to be happening that way. But uh, the Kremlin has issued its sharpest comments yet about cutting off Russia's natural gas flow to Europe via the key Nord Stream 1 pipeline on Monday, saying supplies would not resume until, quote, the collective West unquote, lift sanctions against Moscow. Quote, problems with gas supply arose because of the sanctions imposed on our country by Western states, including Germany and Britain. We see incessant attempts to shift responsibility and blame onto us. We categorically reject this and insist that the collective West, in this case, the EU, Canada, the UK, is to blame for the fact that the situation has reached the point where it is now. So, Jim, um, the problem is, is that a lot of countries in Europe, especially Germany, uh, don't really have a plan B with this situation. And so if Nord Stream 1 is uh, cut off, they are going to be facing a significant energy crisis um, and much, much higher prices for what does exist in terms of energy. So um, is there a way to call the, uh, the Russians bluff here or is uh, Europe screwed for having trusted Moscow so much up until a few months ago? Well, if the U.S. was going, um, I need a non-off-color metaphor here, uh, all out, right? I, I had a few other ones in mind to increase, you know, our liquid natural gas exports uh, and every possible way of getting getting energy to Russia, seeing it as the moral equivalent of lend-lease during World War II. We need to do our part to help keep Europe, if not quite energy independent, then not energy dependent upon Russia. Uh, in order to keep the sanctions in place, in order to keep the aid going to Ukraine, et cetera. Otherwise, Russia will take over Ukraine. Um, by the way, before we go any further into the adventures of Nord Stream 1, I do think this is an illustrative point about the you know short-lived but it, it ultimately uh, key drama about Nord Stream 2. I shouldn't say key, maybe I should just say illustrative. Biden as a candidate said he opposed the completion of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which would be another way to get natural gas from Russia to 
uh, Europe. Numerous folks in German politics thought this was a terrific idea. I believe Gerhard Schroeder was on the board of a Russian natural gas company. Uh, Gerhard Schroeder's former chancellor of Germany. You may recall him from uh, demonizing or being vehemently opposed to George W. Bush. And while it's not, you know, people may debate the accuracy of calling him a Putin stooge, it is safe to say that he has, you know, post-Chancellor life in the employ of a Russian company has been extraordinarily lucrative for Gerhard Schroeder. So everybody in Germany thought Nord Stream 2 was a terrific idea. Biden, to his credit, initially opposed it. Then he got into office and he decided to drop U.S. opposition to the completion of Nord Stream 2. Now, this was done in the name of building a stable and secure relationship with Russia. A whole bunch of us who pointed out that he had pledged to be so tough against Russia, then he got into office and all of a sudden he's playing footsie and he's trying to play nice again. Uh, the argument from the Biden team was that the Germans were absolutely determined to see this thing get finished. It was going to ruin our relationship with the Germans. So we had no choice but to surrender. Well, now here we are. Nord Stream 2, to its credit, has no, well, no gas has gone through it. I don't know if it's actually, I think it's like 90 some percent completed, if it's not completely completed. Um, it is, you know, it has turned into an enormous amount of wasted energy no pun intended, because it ended up being another way of making Central Europe even more dependent upon Russia for energy supplies. And clearly, the idea that Russia could be a reliable, fair, and stable energy partner uh, was always an uh, unrealistic hope. It was always willful blindness about the nature of Putin, and some might argue willful blindness about the nature of Russian leadership. Um, no matter what era you're in, the the you know the impulse, the imperialist impulse, the aggressive impulse, the desire to control Eastern Europe as a sphere of influence, never went away, and the Germans just wanted to pretend that it didn't exist. They don't have uh, natural gas from the first Nord Stream one, um, demonstrating this is the nightmare scenario. This is what the U.S. had been trying to argue against through the Trump years, and in fact, going there most certainly the the parties on the right, but generally Americans did not want to see. Central Europe becoming dependent upon Russia for energy. And here they are. You know, this would be a really good time for us to maximize all of our energy production, except, uh, Greg, I don't know if you noticed, in today's Wall Street Journal, they say that the Biden administration has offered way, way, way fewer acres for uh, oil drilling, both offshore and on federal lands. We are at about 2% of the limit of the last low that was under Nixon back in like 1970 or something like that. No, it doesn't surprise me at all. They said this is exactly what they were going to do. He's going to end fossil fuels. He said that a number of times on the campaign trail. And I can't help but see parallels to our own country here, Jim. I know we're talking about different parts of the world mostly today. But if you look uh, at Chile and the agenda that they just tried to shove down the throats of the people, looks a lot like the uh, agenda of the left in this country. Free education, free health care, free housing, all this other sorts of things, gender parity. Um equity. Uh, I don't know if that was the exact word that the Chileans used. And then when it comes to energy independence, we had it and we're just punting it away. So we're uh, going to end up begging to other countries for energy as well, because deep down, they have to know that no matter what they do with renewables anytime in the near future, it's not going to meet demand. So they're going to end up doing the exact same thing these European countries are doing on some level because they refuse to explore here at home. It makes no sense whatsoever. Greg, basically the, the left and the democratic agenda is we promise we will increase demand and we will reduce supply and trust us, everything will work out fine. <laughs> yeah, how's that working out, California? So, hey, midterm voters, pay attention to what the Chilean voters just did and do likewise. That would be great this year. <laughs>
So, Jim, happy Tuesday. Maybe we'll talk about something directly in America tomorrow. We probably will. Looking forward to it, Greg. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. And do subscribe uh, to the podcast if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. Also, remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And don't forget Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, and the short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Tuesday, and join us again on Wednesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. The mainstream media shies away from the simple questions with hard answers that we all need to hear. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. Every day on the No Chit Chat podcast, I bring you the reality of what's going on in our government and around the country with no extra fluff. In my latest episodes, I lay out the blunt facts of what's going on in the District of Columbia, the way the media is misleading the public, and plans that political parties are making. Concise, comprehensible news is what America needs and deserves. I'm here to deliver. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.